agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I'm I'm uh, feeling like I've just been released from my conservatorship. Oh, like I was it's, it's, uh, I, freedom, freedom. I reigns. was hoping you were going to do that one. Yeah, now now Brittany can listen to the show uh, all by her own volition. If she's there, you know, Brittany, hi, how you doing? Congratulations. Yes. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, before we get started, I wanted to mention something very briefly. If uh, you happen to notice in the near future a sort of mini episode sort of thing. In the podcast feed, that do not be alarmed. Uh, this is a, a little thing we're doing when we occasionally come across podcasts that we really like. It's sort of a brief intro sort of thing. You might have seen other kind of big brand name podcasts do the same thing. Well, we're getting in on that as well. And so, if that pops up in your feed, it is uh, it is no cause for alarm and just a, a thing we're trying out. So, anyway, just wanted to pass that along. Another thing I wanted to pass along is what we will be talking about today, and we have a lot to talk about today. We have a sort of late-breaking story, uh, a Fifth Circuit ruling on the vaccine, the OSHA vaccine mandate. We have a lot to talk about with inflation, which is once again up, a federal appeals court blocking the January 6th committee request for Trump documents related to, well, January 6th, a federal judge saying that the Texas mask mandate ban violates the Americans with Disabilities Act, backlash against House uh, Republican infrastructure bill supporters that got pretty rough, actually. And uh, if we have time, some thoughts about a brand new university and uh, maybe some uh, also some thoughts about uh, Pew Research Center's latest political typology. Both Jay and I have taken that uh, test for that and some kind of surprising results and maybe some issues we have with it as well. So that is a lot to cover. And as always, we will not get to all of that on the regular show. And so that will be there on the bonus show for Patreon supporters. And if you are not a Patreon supporter to become one, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And if you would like to get that weekly extra show that comes out right at the same time as the regular show, but you're not able to uh, financially support the show, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. And we also are happy to take your money, not just on Patreon, but on PayPal uh, or on Venmo, where we're at Politics Guys. And to see all those options, you can just go to politicsguys.com slash support. And so we will get right in with our first story after just quick break. Okay, Jay, so uh, I actually have to give kudos to you for letting me know about this late-breaking story. It might not have made it in time for me to put together my uh, sort of preview of it or summary of it. And so thanks for it. It's really kind of, it's late breaking in a way, but it's not because on November 6th, which was just after you and I did last week's podcast, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals halted the implementation of the uh, of OSHA's rule requiring employers with 100 or more employees uh, to ensure that their workers are fully either fully vaccinated against COVID-19 or that they test negative for the virus at least once a week. And that emergency stay 
then was granted pending briefing and expedited review by the court. Well, late yesterday, November 12th, the Fifth Circuit reaffirmed that stay, but in a longer opinion that I would say made their view of the merits of the case crystal clear. Uh, In his 22-page opinion for the unanimous three-judge panel, Judge Kurt D. Engelhart, a Bush appointee to the federal bench who recently was uh, a few years ago was appointed to the appeals court by President Trump, noted that under the traditional stay standard, a court considers four factors, whether the stay applicant has made a strong showing he's likely to succeed on the merits, whether the applicant will be irreparably injured absent the stay, whether issuance of a stay will substantially injure the other parties interested in the proceeding, and finally, where the public interest lies. And they concluded that all of those factors favored a stay in this case. Now, after Jay alerted me to that ruling yesterday evening, I started to read it, and my assumption going in was that the OSHA rule was eh, probably a bit of a stretch, but I was inclined to give the agency the benefit of the doubt, as as I believe courts should and generally actually do in in these cases. But after reading the opinion, I came away believing not only that the OSHA regulation was clearly overly broad, but that it was outside of the scope of the agency's authority in any case. And even, and this is what surprised me most, maybe, even if Congress had specifically authorized the OSHA measure or just itself in the past legislation saying this, that it, it might not have been within Congress's power to even do that. And I got to say, I was not expecting that. So, Jay, you know, you're the attorney here, obviously. So I thought we could start off by you explaining what the court held and, you know, what you thought about it. Sure. And uh, yeah, after reading the opinion, Mike uh, immediately went online and ordered a MAGA hat. uh, (laughs) (laughs) He's like, finally saw the light. Um, uh, No, I, I, you know, look, I I agree with uh, what uh, Judge Engelhart uh, and the rest of the court uh, wrote there in that um, this is something that is is new and sweeping and much bigger than anything that that. OSHA could have been expected to uh, uh, regulate or or control um, through its organic statute. Um, on the procedural basis of this, now there's some other weird stuff going on here, and this is really in the um, this is like the, the high level um, uh, advanced class here. Uh, so, Mike, you set out the the standards for uh, a stay. It's essentially the same as as an injunction. And what we had before was this emergency motion to issue a stay, which is kind of like, and again, the, the terminology is not exact, but it's in effect the same thing, what they call in, in courts a temporary restraining order, which is the one side rushes into court and says, court, you got to stop this right away. We don't even have time to hear have a, have a hearing on it, which is what the court did last week. And then they said, okay, but we're going to get this, this hearing on the briefs um, uh, as soon as possible. Uh, and then what you have secondarily is is what's called the uh, preliminary injunction uh, order, which is uh, so a, a a somewhat um, on the merits, right? There's there's uh, some presentation of arguments or evidence when needed, um, and and you get a a sense of where the court's going on whether there's irreparable harm and whether uh, who's likely to uh, succeed on the merits. It's not a final judgment on the merits, um, but in most cases, right? It it's it gives you a pretty clear idea of where the court is, and it's it's unlikely, um, or or it's I would say it's unusual, uh, very unusual for a court to say 
this is unlikely to succeed on the merits as a matter of law, right? There's no there's no new evidence that's going to come in. It's going to change something. Um, and then you know at the at a later date say, well, no, now we think it it uh, we're reversing that, and we we don't think it wins on the merits. Um, the complicating and weird factor uh, in this is there have been uh, lawsuits filed against the mandate all over the place. Uh, in some cases, almost friendly lawsuits uh, uh, in, in certain districts. And it's been assigned to what's called uh, multi-district litigation, meaning uh, all these cases are eventually going to be heard by one court. It's also weird that we're in the Circuit Court of Appeals uh, because that's that's sort of a function of the, the statute that um, the, the administration OSHA relied on in passing the, the temporary emergency standard or, or the rule. Uh, the way that that works, it's actually in the statute that says, look, if you want to seek a stay, the first place you seek the stay is in your local court of appeals. So we're we're in a weird, weird world because everything's in the court of appeals already. There are a, a bunch of these cases across the country. They're all going to be consolidated into one. Uh, the Fifth Circuit is the only one that's ruled so far. And I think it is on Tuesday where there is is literally it's it's a, a lottery. They they pick a circuit sort of from like a bin, right? Um, that's actually how they do it. Um, and that's that's like the winning circuit <laughs> that's going to get uh, where all these these cases are going to be consolidated. So there, there there's more to come. Um, and and so, for example, you know, you could end up with a uh, if, if it's the Ninth Circuit that, that gets all these cases, um, them taking a different view of it. Uh, but the fact is, the Fifth Circuit's opinion is out there now. Uh, so that's there's they they are sort of uh, first out of the gate and and uh, sort of set the tone for for uh, the continuing litigation. But it's going to be there's a lot of like you know the of your your legal insider types um, like me who are going to be watching uh, Tuesday when they pull the names out of the hat um, to, to see what court you go to. Now again, regardless, it, it's going to go to the Supreme Court um, eventually. Um, but, uh, I think that's just a, it would, that's, it's going to be an interesting, um, I, I interesting get, to see what happens there. I gotta say, Jay, though, I, I would find it hard to believe that the majority, that the majority of justices on the Supreme court would not fully agree with, uh, with the ruling here by the fifth circuit, at least with the logic, because if, I, if, they, if they got, if they got you, I would say, uh, uh getting Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and, uh, Coney Barrett yeah. should be no problem. No, no. And, and, and you know, <laughs> I want to make something clear is that I, I, I am certainly a fan of vaccination and I am certainly a fan of government doing whatever it Mandates. can within its authority. <laughs> well, within its authority to actually encourage and even if possible mandate vaccinations. And so this is one of these cases where I have a preferred policy outcome and my preferred policy outcome would be if there is a way for for the state to mandate vaccines, I am on balance okay with that. Though I recognize it's an imposition of freedom, I feel it's a permissible information uh, imposition on free on personal freedom under the circumstances. But I come away from this convinced that as a matter of law, both both uh, Congress's statute and constitutional law, that while this would have been permissible if it had been done by the individual states, it's just I just can't see it as being permissible as being done 
by the federal government really in, in, in any instance. And I, you know, that's maybe regrettable, but I, I can't just change the constitution and federalism and the statute just because there's a, there's a policy outcome I would like, you know? And so I think that's an that's, important, that's why, and Mike, that's why uh, I, I salute you for your intellectual honesty on these things. I mean, I think that's, I, I, I try to do the same, um, you know, when, when the shoe's on the other foot, uh, but no, I, I think that's that's sort of the to me is, is the the fundamental question here. Um, setting aside the, the or sort of I shouldn't say setting aside, but the the bigger picture beyond the legalistics is, look, is this something that is the federal government's business? Um, and I think you're 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 exactly right on that. It's it's an overreach. Now states have much broader police power generally uh, over their citizens, and, and I I would agree that a state could probably craft a a vaccine mandate um, that that would be more workable. Now, now again, I I wouldn't go as far as say it's necessarily constitutional because I think there's plenty of ways states could could screw that up, right? But, but um, I mean, it, it seems to me we can kind of look at this in two ways. Number one, if we just put the constitutional issues aside and say, well, okay, let's take a look at OSHA's uh, re- statutory, statutory authority here, and yeah. under. To be clear, this is not a regular rule. This is something called an emergency temporary standard that allows an agency, in this case OSHA, to skip the typical like six-month-long review and comment process before any rule is put into place. It's just saying this is so important that we can't take comments, we can't go through the normal review process for every other rule, and so therefore the standard for allowing that is is much higher. It has to be under extraordinary circumstances and what the court found i, I think the uh, i think grave grave danger grave danger is, of harm is used yeah that, yeah that that failure to adopt the standard would pose a grave danger to the the people yeah. um i think i think it's great i think I, it's I don't grave danger in front yeah, of me. yeah. And, and and the um, point the point being made here by the court is that well certainly we're not saying that COVID is not a grave danger in in general but if you look at the rule and what the rule is addressing there, uh, there's not enough here to determine that there is a specific grave danger, not just of exposure, but of actual harm, especially yeah. as they point out in the decision with like 78 percent or more of the population 12 and above vaccinated that that standard. Maybe that would be a different be a different conclusion if this were a regular rule, but it's not. It's an ETS. And so that standard is higher. And they say, well. It doesn't meet that standard just just by that ground. And kind of related to this is if you take a look at the nature of the rule itself, it makes no determination. It makes no uh, uh, distinguishing between different types of jobs. All it says is 100 or more. And as the court points out in the opinion, saying, well, there's a pretty big difference in terms of grave danger if you are, say, a long haul trucker in a company with more than 100, empl- 100 or more employees, or if you are, a, the other example you have is a janitor in a prison. And so in that sense, they find that just in how the statute is constructed or the regulation is constructed, it's overly broad and kind of related to that to say, but on the same token, they say, well, we're only applying this to 100 or more. Why? Well, because, well, we think businesses with under 100 people wouldn't be able to necessarily implement that. And so the court says, well, wait a second. So that's that sort of goes pushes back against your idea right. that there's a grave danger here because it's a grave if it's a yeah there's there's a yeah there's a great line where the the judge says that you know a, a co a one worker with who has ninety nine coworkers would face a grave danger 
while a, a coworker with only 98 coworkers yeah, would not. Exactly. And so, again, I, we're, we're going to post the uh, the link to this this opinion because it's it's only 22 pages. And if you don't read the footnotes, it's quicker than that. And like I said, it, it took me, it, it convinced me. And not only that, but I feel like it's, I, I said the J before the show, is I, I wish they took, they, they gave this opinion as an example to all new federal judges to say, this is how you write stuff because it was clear, concise, compelling, uh, and just, you know, and again, it was not the decision I would have hoped for on policy grounds, but it certainly convinced me uh, just in terms of the quality of the, of the logic and argument. So that's the, the regulatory sort of OSHA's regulatory authority. But the second thing I wanted to bring up was the constitutional argument, because I wasn't actually expecting that. And they at the beginning of the opinion, the opinion, they said, well, we don't really have to get into that here because it's so bad for other reasons. But they do actually get into it because normally the argument is, well, Congress can regulate on this or allow uh, or, or give this regulatory authority to, to agencies based on its commerce a power, right? Just saying that, well, this right. is part of regulating commerce between the states. But the court here argues that, well, not necessarily in this instance, right? Yeah. And and that's, you know, so as as most people or very frequent listeners or or people who are into this kind of thing know, um, commerce has has come to mean just about most anything, right? Uh, in, in some ways can be related to commerce and therefore open to federal regulation. Uh, and there are some some very few exceptions, uh, but but this would be one of them. And interestingly, the uh, the judge actually cites to the Sibelius case, uh, the um, uh, ACC um, uh, case mm-hmm. and uh, or ACA, ACA. case um, and uh, uh, for that, that, that look, there's no um, there's no actual interstate uh commerce going on here uh between what a, what an employer does for their own workers with within that state um and i think that's that's sort of exactly right uh that they're taking the the broader piece that look even if congress did, had uh, uh enacted a statute uh that was broad enough to to permit this um, it would still be unconstitutional because it would be an overreach of Congress's con- uh, con- ah, Congress's yeah. commerce power. You know, I think it might it might have been from that case where they where they quote uh, uh, they cite Justice Roberts uh, in his concurrence, and he writes, and I thought it's really kind of brought it home to me. This argument uh, wrote that Roberts wrote people for reasons of their own often fail to do things that would be good for them or good for society. Those failures joined with the similar failures of others can readily have a substantial effect on interstate commerce under the government's logic that authorizes Congress to use its commerce power to compel citizens to act as the government would have them act. So in other words, you could say that, well, certainly it would be indirectly better for interstate commerce if people were healthier, if they ate less red meat, if they ate less animal fats, if they didn't smoke. And if they didn't, you know, if they lost weight, what have you. And so under that logic, all of those things have an indirect effect on interstate commerce. So therefore, the government could pass a regulation saying that you either have a BMI of X or you have to do weekly weigh-ins or something like that. And that yeah. would be the same sort of logic. And and, and clearly, in, in, you know, in that instance that, you know, that would be uh, uh, no one would. Well, there are some people who might be okay with that, but most people wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. be no, okay it goes with that. it goes to that you know the what is the limiting principle? Yeah, 
And, and that's sort of what what if if Congress can say um, that it has the power to intrude on this would be a very personal health decision. Um, uh, what what uh, can can Congress not uh, legislate on? And if that's the case, then uh, listen, aren't aren't we? You know, if the entire premise of our Constitution is that the federal government is one of limited powers, uh, limited, limited and enumerated powers, um, you know, that that kind of all goes out the window. So I, I think that's, again, a, a great and I'm I'm always happy and, and, and a little bit like if I'm an absolute purist on sort of uh, opinion writing and sort of what they call the Brandeis rules and stuff. I mean, maybe maybe I don't get to that Commerce Clause uh, question. <laughs> right. But um uh, that that what I'm referring to is there's sort of a, a general sense of for most courts, look, if you don't have to reach a constitutional issue, um, then you don't. Right. If you can decide it just on the statute, there's no way to get in the Constitution. Now, of course, on this where where it is a temporary stay and they're sort of evaluating um, uh, a possibility of success on the merits, uh, you can sort of take a broader scope. Right. And say, well, look, on any, you know potential reading and even even if assuming congress had this power or you were to say that uh the statutory um, um you know claim would would fail or would would succeed that the statute was authorized we would still say that the statute was unconstitutional right so so I, yeah you give them a bigger strike zone there but no you're you're absolutely right and and again i will probably get i'll probably get some some pushback well you know Mike isn't a real liberal in that sense. Why don't but, you? Why don't you? Yeah. Why? Why are you for the unvaccinated? But 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 again, no. I think it's important to emphasize that you know it, it's important to not start from we'll say well what is the result I want and then work backward and sort of support the logic that or the the lack thereof right that gives me that result and and I think both on the right and the left there's far too much of that and so we'll we'll see all of the predictable responses both from the right and the left and the vast majority of those responses will be like well this is the final result I wanted and just you know, the, the reasoning is just you know unimportant essentially because what I want is what yeah. I should get and that is uh, you know, that, that to me is what's so deeply problematic about uh, American political discourse, you know, so. Well, you know, what, and what often troubles me, I think, on, on people on the right and, and the fact that uh, is so much so often misunderstood um, about conservatism, conservatism yeah. is, is the sense of, uh, you know, OK, here's something that is good for you. Um, and but then sort of the the left and i'm 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 not saying you but i'm saying others on the left in general there's the sense of well, look if it's something good for you or good for society well we ought to make it mandatory um and that's that's where we sort of you know <laughs> you know there, there's that parting of the ways where there are there are plenty of as you as you said and as, as uh, uh the judge points out there's plenty of things that might be good for you might be good for society might be good for for the health of the country in general uh, but that doesn't mean that that uh, the federal government has the power or ought to uh, make them mandatory. Yeah, and and there's certainly a balance to be considered here. I think with all these things, it's not necessarily a, you know one or the other. It's what's the extent what's the extent of the potential harm that could be caused to society. And and there's always that balancing. And I think as a general rule, you know, conservatives like you will tend to favor a little bit more liberty interests and and liberals more like myself will tend to, to favor not not to discount liberty interests but certainly to favor interests of equality and what we believe to be social good a little bit more and and so it's not a it's not a one or the other 
type of type of situation, basically. But it seems like pretty clearly in this instance, it would be to me, it would be shocking if this OSHA rule ever goes into effect. Agreed. Yes. So there we there we have it with that. All right. Well, then, why don't we first take just a very quick break and then we will come back and talk about inflation. Some not so great news. Okay, so Jay, you know, inflation continues to rise. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported this week that inflation in October was up 6.2% compared to a year ago. That's the biggest increase in, I believe, 31 years. Food, housing. Who could have and, predicted that, Mike? Yeah, well, well, we'll get to that, yeah. Now, food and housing <laughs> and energy prices all rose, really. They kind of led that with gasoline up right around 50% from a year earlier. And prices also rose nearly 1% from September to October. And that's the biggest one month increase since the post-financial crisis recession over 12 years ago now. Now the Federal Reserve continues to say that they expect inflation to be transitory, but politicians and now some economists are starting to wonder how transitory it actually is and when we might actually expect a return to something approaching pre-pandemic inflation numbers. Um, Talking with reporters last week, Fed Chair Jay Powell said, It's very difficult to predict the persistence of supply constraints or their effects on inflation. Global supply chains are complex. They will return to normal function, but the timing of that is highly uncertain. And just a few days ago, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin tweeted, by all accounts, the threat posed by record inflation to the American people is not transitory and is instead getting worse. From the grocery store to the gas pump, Americans know the inflation tax is real and D.C. can no longer ignore the economic pain Americans feel every day. Now, Manchin gets, well, that tweet gets at least two things wrong. Number one, it's not record inflation in the larger sense, but okay, I'll give him a pass on that. But it's definitely not true that by all accounts, inflation is not transitory. In fact, still by most accounts, most economists believe the opposite, even if they're somewhat less confident in their predictions of how long this transitoriness will be than they were a few months ago. But well, hold on, but let me just I mean, say. I, I could say, look, the, the, the dark ages were transitory. Yeah, but, uh, well, you know, <laughs> but, but, but let me just say, now, when it comes to inflation, perception can matter a lot. And, Jay, you in particular have pointed this out previously on the show, because if enough people believe prices are going to continue rising, they're, well, they're likely to stock up now on whatever they can to avoid those future price hikes, which in turn can cause prices to rise, making inflation, at least to a certain degree, a certain extent, possibly a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is why I have such a problem with the fear-mongering, what I see as fear-mongering from people like Joe Manchin. I feel that's highly irresponsible, but that's we can, we can get into that. So, Jay, I, I pretty, I'm pretty sure I know how you feel about these latest inflation numbers. And I could just feel the the self congratulatoryness sort of just just I do. seeping I mean, again, through it's, it's here. Sort of like but... I'm I'm saddened, but but also uh, you know triumphant. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I I think something else that, that the uh, the Jerome Powell did not mention, um, which is you know I, I, again sort of you can read your own thing into this about saying well this is you know supply chain issues. Um, yes and no. I think some of the supply chain issues are certainly contributing to it, but as is, uh, you know, almost a year and a half of, of zero interest rates and uh, pumping a bazillion dollars uh, into the economy um, is, you know, that that that's that's a lot of it too. Um, and 
And I think it's. Yeah. Know, and, I, and I want to talk about that because the, the Fed's position for a while now, since this, since the pandemic started, is that, well, well, first off, they, they took short term interest rates down to effectively zero. And they have said for a long time now that they don't want to raise interest rates until the labor market is back to its pre-pandemic trajectory. And we're getting there, certainly. The latest jobs report looked really good, and they have been looking good for a while, but we're not there yet. Now, earlier but earlier this month, a few weeks ago, uh, they announced that they'd begin tapering down their monthly treasury bond and mortgage bond purchases. And so that's what the Fed does. It's called quantitative easing. When, it's actually how they change interest rates. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it, it's, it changes longer term interest rates because when they take short term rates down to zero, they can't they can't go lower than zero on that. Well, you can't. It gets kind of complex. But anyway, the Japanese. It, yeah, and they but, monetary policy. Yeah. They but so they, they buy treasury bonds and mortgage bonds. What do they buy them with? Well, they just create money basically to buy them with. And to give you a sense of how big of a deal this is, since the beginning of the pandemic, every single month, the Fed has been purchasing $80 billion in treasury bonds and $40 billion in mortgage bonds. That's every, that's $120 billion every month. And this is, again, in addition to having those short-term interest rates at effectively zero. And so that is a, that is a huge fiscal stimulus. And, and this is why kind of circling around to build back better. When you think about the size of the stimulus that the Fed is injecting compared to the decade-long price tag for build back better, the Fed has a lot more ability to very quickly put the brakes on this than anything Congress is doing or considering doing. And so that, that to me, in a sense, is, is uh, why I have a big problem with where Joe Manchin is going on this. Now, I think Manchin is just saying the things he's saying, so he gives himself cover for potentially voting against the Build Back Better. So that's maybe a political thing. But the, the Fed has done an awful lot to prop up the economy. And I think that, you know, they're doing the right thing and in, in pumping the brakes a little bit here. Yeah, I, I, I would have, you know, again, we had this conversation a while back and I would have been pumping the brakes uh, six months earlier. Um, at least, and again, I'm not a, a con those. What you're talking about the, the the M1, right, Mike? That's the the money supply. I think is how it, it works uh -huh. with economists, if I remember correctly. Um, and there was always this debate, right, in in your your academic circles and your economy circles of what matters more: is it monetary policy or is it fiscal policy in terms of this, in terms of inflation and and um, uh, heating and stimulating the economy, and you know, look, that's that's sort of a <clears throat> how many angels can dance on the head of a pin type question uh, when we're, you know, or, or a, you know, taste great, less filling um, type answer uh, is that they both do it. Uh, but regardless of what the Fed's doing, um, you know, I don't know that that anyone would say, um, look, look, I guess. So here's the thing. I, I guess I could say, listen, uh, I could if I'm in, in Congress and wanted to pass a big spending increase. I can make the argument of, look, the Fed's got really tight money uh, at this point. They're not doing anything. Um, the Fed is, you know, strangling the economy. This was sort of an argument that Trump made, um, is the Fed wasn't relaxing interest rates uh, quickly enough. Um, you know, therefore, we ought to do more in terms of fiscal policy to stimulate the economy. But when when the Fed's been going full bore all this time, um, I think it's it's sort of an argument that uh, another reason why you don't need more more uh, uh, 
expending on the fiscal side. Yeah. So, well, and, and just to put this in the context, uh, you know, I I think, well, if you look at Build Back Better, it's it's right now it's at one point seven trillion dollars, right? Over ten years, and now that's not to say that it's equally spread out. They're going to try to, I'm sure, the front load to extent that you can, oh, but yeah. but you divide obviously that by ten, and you get one hundred seventy billion dollars per year. And n- number one, in an economy with the GDP of nearly twenty one trillion, that's just over eight tenths of one percent. So, and that that would be smaller every year in the future as the economy grows, but. I think Unless it's, they renew but, but it's programs. important, you know, it's important to point out that $170 billion, that's considerably less than the Fed has been injecting into the economy every two months. So, I mean, yeah. that, yeah. so these are two. Um, well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you're, you're, you're wrong on that, yeah. right? That the, the Fed has been doing a whole lot. I'm, I'm saying, um, you know, almost, well, be, because the Fed has been, <laughs> been doing so much or, or some might argue too much. Um, we ought not to. I guess. I guess uh, what I'm saying is that fiscal path. I, I'm. I'm saying. You know. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that if one is otherwise for build back better, this would not be an argument that I. I think if one's being honest, would tilt one saying, well, we shouldn't do it. Now, I think it's perfectly understandable that people who are against it just already and who would be against it under any circumstances would say, oh yeah, and it might contribute to inflation. But I think that's an incredibly weak argument certainly uh and that's i that's, well, that's like what i'm saying what i'm getting okay so yeah <laughs> so uh but you know and i think joe you're being a little more intellectually honest than say joe manchin who again i think is just desperately looking for any reason to not support this and he's really happy that he that he has this so you know and, and so i was thinking about this thing well what could we do i don't i don't know i i would say i, I don't know that you have to be desperate to look for reasons but well, yeah, well, I mean, on, on policy grounds, you're saying, and I, that's where you and I disagree yeah. on that. We've talked about that before. But, you know, it's clear to me that, well, what, what could you do? What can Democrats do to get the, the most reluctant Democrat, right, in the Senate, Joe Manchin, to go along? And I thought, well, you know what? There's actually nothing that would prevent Congress from, say, for the Senate from, or Congress from passing this legislation and saying, but it will only go into effect at X date because Congress passes legislation that has a you know effect date of whatever all kinds of yeah. times into the future and say and only if inflation is under x percent now they've never done anything like that before as far as i can tell from from my research into this but that would certainly answer mansion's concerns he'd find another reason i think to, to not support it but the, the big thing is i think if you're being incredibly cautious you can make an argument to say well why don't we wait six months, whatever, uh, six, eight yeah. months to see how this plays out. And and I get that argument. I don't think it's a good argument. Now, politically, it's a horrible argument for Democrats for a number of reasons. Number one is, you know, there are six Democratic senators over the age of 70 in states where the governor is a Republican and could appoint a replacement if a senator retires or dies in office. You know, in the 60-50-50 Senate, that's a consideration. And uh, not only that, but two of those Democrats are 80 or older, both from Vermont, weirdly, where I guess they like to just elect old Democratic senators. But, you know, and and also as you get closer to the midterm elections, you're going to find more Democrats, more centrist Democrats becoming, I think, a little more uncomfortable with this thing. So, you know, the political and policy timelines don't necessarily line up. 
And and so I think well, that's and, the, the window is closing. Yeah, the is, window is, is closing. Exactly. So there's that. But I, I, I got to say, I am becoming, you know, I, I have said that I think something will pass. I still I still think on balance that that is going to happen. But but I am a lot less confident in that than I was even a few weeks ago, given what Manchin has been, you know, Manchin has been signaling. So I, I, you know, I'm not entirely sure about that now. Um, but I want well, to, I mean, I think, I think also, I, I think the inflation numbers do play into this just in terms of, 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 uh, you know, people looking at, at this proposal and seeing, regardless of, if you, if you want to say the impact of the fed is, is bigger um, the impact of monetary policy is has more to do with inflation than fiscal policy. Uh, fine, but I think people are not are not wrong to say, as, as I was kind of pointing out, that um, look, if if we are, uh, you know, we you know, let's say we're six percent year over year um, right now, um, you know, see where we are once we get through the holidays, and, and this is a time when people do a lot of spending, a lot of shopping, and they're going to be saying, "Geez." Um, there's there's you know i'm paying a whole lot more than i did last year um is is the you know the remedy um you know what we need is is the the federal government to inject more money uh i think there's a, a very good argument to say that no that uh, you know whatever impact that might may have uh even if it's if it's dwarfed by the fed it that's not a good thing you know it's sort of like well only only throw a little bit of gasoline on the fire yeah and uh, see it, but, it still is just not a yeah yeah but but i think we on the left don't really look at it as injecting money into the economy, which just sounds like a kind of a weird, you know, stupid kind of thing to do out and stupid necessarily. But we look at it as making just dramatic and transformative in some cases, semi-transformative changes in terms of social policy. And so, the right. you know, it's but not. How, how is that done? Well, it's done by it's done through obviously, you know, through spending money you have to spend this money dollars, yeah but you got to remember that a lot of this month a lot of this is paid for through higher taxes so it's not like this is you know this is just all this is all just <laughs> this is the best of both worlds <laughs> well i mean taxing people who can afford uh, yeah I, I certainly think it's the best of both worlds absolutely absolutely and so the the the, uh, the, the issue that this might have an incredibly mild uh inflationary effect when the fed still has a ton of tools in its toolkit, I that it's all right. I mean, it's the Fed is just stomped on the gas pedal as hard as it can. Say, like, oh my God, we're speeding. So we'll just pull off the gas pedal. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to stop in its tracks. Very positive, transformative social policy changes because of this. And so that's why I think that you know, from the left, we just don't see this as a very viable argument at all. Um, and, but I want to come back to the inflation part because certainly yeah, that yes. that baseline number is. Concerning anyone should be concerned, especially given that it seems that inflation has spread beyond some of these sort of really core type of supply chain things into some other sectors. But I still think there are good reasons to think that this is still transitory. And one of them is what's uh, is the what's called the uh, trimmed mean PCE inflation measure, which is a measure of inflation that the Dallas Fed developed a while ago. And their research has shown that this is actually a better indicator of long-term inflation trends than that headline number that we quote of the six point six point two percent. And right now, the uh, this well, this measure of inflation basically, as the name suggests, it trims out the most extreme price rises and drops because 
what past research over decades and decades has shown is that these are often the result of one-off factors and not a sign of underlying inflation. And typically what happens then is those unusual events create short-term spikes, but within around a year or so, headline inflation and this mean PCE, trimmed mean PCE inflation converge. And right now, the latest measure of the trimmed mean PCE inflation is 2.3%. Now that's for September. It's probably going to be a little higher in October. But given the research on this, it seems to me that this is at least a reasonably robust indicator that what we're seeing is in fact transitory. And within a year or so, we can expect to see headline inflation and this trim mean PCE converge somewhere in the below, you know, between two and three percent level. And I think that to me, that's exactly you know what you would expect. Although again, granted that time period is longer than a lot of folks expected. But this is while this is a one-off event, COVID, let's hope it's a one-off event, it's one of the sort of uh, scope that we've never seen before. Well, I, you know, I guess my my issue so often with with experts um, is that so often they're wrong. I mean, if you look at what Powell was uh, suggesting back at the beginning of the year when we were talking about, well, inflation is just transitory. Uh, he was talking about in terms of months, right? That, oh, the once, you know, in the summer, this will all be straightened out and we're looking at a yearly inflation probably around 2.5. That's what we're shooting for. Um, and he was nowhere close. And and I, I think you're, mis- I I think you're was- somewhat mischaracterizing. And also, I want to say that, you know, I think it's, I think it is a well, that's that's been the Fed's state of goal though, right? No, was, that's they the goal, were, certainly. And it's two point five. Yeah, that's what we're working on and I think this argument that or it's maybe not your argument, and maybe you're just exaggerating for effect and saying the thing about experts is that they're so often wrong. And the implication there is that, well, experts are wrong more than they're right. And it seems to me, and I think this is a big problem, especially on the right. I, I certainly accept that some folks uh, would, would just say, well, we just have to follow the experts blindly because they're always right. right. I, I disagree with that. But this idea that experts are wrong more than they're right. And that's what, at least from what I heard I'm, from what I'm, you were I'm saying. Pushing, I'm, pu- I'm pushing back on the argument. And, and part of this comes up because that was sort of one of those questions on the um, the, the little test we yeah, took. The thing, yeah. um, pushing back on the, the government by expertise and the um the you know well shut up that guy's an expert uh yeah, I'm not i, I saying think that, that but... i think we ought not i'm i'm arguing that yeah experts should not be followed blindly especially when they're in in political positions um you know jerome jerome powell certainly has a, a whole lot more uh economic expertise he's forgotten more about economics than i've ever learned um but he's also a political actor and, and that's why and, and as is you know, him? someone like you know, like Fauci, right? Again, he knows certainly more about medicine than I do. Um, but I, 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 I'm against accepting the idea that, well, this person's an expert, uh, and therefore this is, the, you know, the, 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 the question is settled. Me too. I, I agree with you there. I, what, I was, what I was kind of arguing against is this notion, again, and this is not an uncommon notion, saying that, well, experts are wrong more often than they're right. And I think that is just that is just flat out incorrect. And I think it's dangerous because it just, just suggests that, well, expertise, we can just ignore expertise. And in fact, the experts, if the elites are saying one thing, well, then we should just do the other thing because they're right. just. No, wrong. I'm not. I'm not su- suggesting a reflexive 
of uh, anytime someone with a, a degree or some level of expertise says something that we ought to assume they're wrong. Um, well, I, I guess, what I guess I'm suggesting then, is I'm, I'm suggesting is they're human. Oh, sure. Absolutely. They're not infallible. There's no question. And especially when we're talking about complex systems, I totally agree with you on that. So given all that, though, what do you think about the fact that, you know, there's a lot of history su to suggest that this trim mean PCE is actually a more accurate indication of inflation trends over time and that it is, you know, considerably lower. I, certainly, you're not going to completely discount. No, I'm, I'm not. Okay. Um, but I, what, I, what I discount and I'm sort of poking fun at is the idea of transitory in that back, you know, again, at the beginning of the year, the sense was, well, transitory means a couple months and sure. now transitory means a year or two. And I, I think it's completely foreseeable that come next summer, um, well, when we said transitory, we mean two or three years. Um, that would be that, stretching the meaning of transitory. Goalpost, yeah. goalpost moving, yeah. right? It, yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And that's, you know, and again, it's the experts who are saying this. And as I I, I said last week's show, I mean, look, at, you know, in, in the big picture, everything's transitory, right? Um but that doesn't mean that you, you might have a couple of years that really suck. No, and, and I think anything anything over a year, that would be not the definition of transitory anymore, at least. And, and also, I should say that that Dallas, uh, the Dallas Fed research suggests that if it, that headline inflation and this trend mean PC, they should converge within a round around a year or so. And so, again, if you start looking out multiple years, no, that's not. That's not transitory. That's like a longer term trend. And I, I agree with you on that. So, you know, but well, one thing I will point out is it, it's positive news, I think, in a sense, or could be seen as positive is now wait, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Wages are definitely way up, but they're not keeping pace with inflation. But on the, the positive end, assuming that this is transitory in a real sense, right, uh, the way we right. are, are seeing it, wages tend to be stickier than prices. Right. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing. It's it's a bad thing when wages don't keep up with prices because what I mean by stickier is that you don't get to renegotiate your salary every week or every month where prices can kind of go up and down like that. But if you can get higher wages locked in, well then they're stickier on the upside as well. And so if this is transitory, well that might mean there'll be at least some wage gains that will be at least for a while locked in and I think that's a positive thing. At least potentially. Yeah, I, I no, I think you're probably right on the, the the wage piece being stickier than a price piece. Um, so yeah, I guess that's good. The other, the other, and this is something I read. And it was this just this morning in the Intercept, um, uh, which I thought was just kind of hilarious about the how how inflation's really good for everybody, um, where it's good for the ninety nine percent is that uh, by diminishing the value of money, it essentially diminishes the amount of debt you might owe yeah, good for borrowers. Uh, to, the, to, to the 1%. Yeah. Um, and which is, which is a really clever argument. And, and I, I think, you know, you can, it would be great to try to explain that to somebody at the grocery store. So. Well, um, I mean, it, it's, you know, again, it's, there are the prices that you see every day, the things you see, whether it's a gallon of gas or a gallon of milk or something like that. But then if you, you know, if you are somebody who has a, 
has a home mortgage for hundreds of thousands of dollars, well, that might not be a price or a savings you see every day because of inflation in that sense, but it is it is likely to dwarf the cost of, say, your yearly milk purchases, unless you're like that one family with five, like, 16 gallons of milk a week or something like that. It's just weird. Right. But, but yeah, so I mean, and, and I think that's, that's, I'm kind of glad you brought that up because of course that is clearly behind this notion for government should do something because those are the prices that you see literally with the gas prices, you know, in big numbers, you know, when you're just driving down the street all the time. And so, but of course that in a way is a deeply unconservative notion, right? That, well, there is a problem. So therefore government should do something about this, uh, and, you know, right. and of course you. No, my, my yeah, my whole point is government should should do less about all of it, and uh, you you will see inflation uh, go back to a normal, healthy sort of because because there is something as, as a healthy inflation. If you have a growing economy, yeah, around two percent, going so. to be inflation, and and you need that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I still just to, just to recall back uh, for listeners that a, a while ago, in fact, uh, about a month ago. Jay and I made inflation predictions, uh, and uh, I will just repeat those here. My prediction, and I will stick to both my predictions. I know Jay will stick to his, certainly. Uh, but I said that by roughly mid-April of 2022, that headline inflation number from compared to a year back will be under 4%, and that by mid-July of 2022, it'll be under 3%. Now, I'll stick with that. You will stick, I am sure, with your, your belief that, that both of those numbers will be higher. Yeah, so, I, I would say I would say five percent at least. So on both will, those numbers, we will see. Absolutely. All right. Well, then let's move on. Uh, on Thursday, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals blocked the release of Trump White House records to the House January sixth committee, and they fast tracked oral arguments for uh, November thirtieth, so just a few weeks from now. Now, the three judges on the D.C. Circuit panel issuing the unanimous ruling, I should point out, were. All Democratic appointees, two Obama appointees and one Biden appointee. In their brief order, the appeals court wrote, the purpose of this administrative injunction is to protect is to protect the court's jurisdiction to address appellant's claim of executive privilege and should not be construed in any way as a ruling on the merits. Now, this followed a ruling earlier in the week from Federal District Court Judge Tanya Chutkin, who rejected Trump's request to enjoin the release of the, re of the requested documents by the committee. And in her ruling, Judge Chutkin argued that the decision to invoke executive privilege rests with the sitting president, who, in her words, is best situated to protect executive branch interests. The incumbent has the information and attendant duty of executing the laws in light of current facts and circumstances. And only the incumbent remains subject to political checks against abuse of that power. Further, she cited the Supreme Court precedent in United States versus Reynolds, in which the court concluded that executive privilege belongs to the government and must be asserted by it. It can neither be claimed nor waived by a private party, as Donald Trump is at this point. However, though, she also noted that the court has found privilege survives the end of a president's term and that in uh, Nixon versus GSA, the court concluded that ensuring that the president can have full and frank discussion with advisors cannot be measured by the president's tenure or the few months after a president's tenure or even years. On the other hand, yeah. though, in the same ruling, the court wrote, the incumbent president is vitally concerned with and in the best position to assess the present and future needs of the executive branch and to support invocation of the privilege accordingly. So. 
it's pretty clear here we have two sort of competing things here. And so, Jay, what do you think about what do you think about these competing arguments? And where would you come down if you were, you know, if you were being asked to rule on this? So I think the I mean, uh, uh, the, the district court judge, uh, uh, everything you just quoted, I think that's exactly right. Uh, uh, and I think the Court of Appeals did exactly the right thing as well. And if, if that seems to be contradictory, um, my sense is she is probably right that um, executive privilege uh, belongs to the current executive. I think as that the Supreme Court language indicates, there is some some holdover, right? Um, uh, for a period of time, uh, that I, I think is is appropriate, and that's that's a, a that's a tough call to make, right? And that's going to be sort of a fact fact intensive inquiry. Um, but I think the Court of Appeals is entirely right to stay this, just from the legal sense, right? This is one of those cases where we talk about irreparable harm, and one of the one of the um, uh, big irreparable harms in the law is well waiving of a privilege because the idea is once that's done the bell can't be unrung. So it makes sense, uh, especially if you're dealing with a a big question like this executive privilege and a big question that will likely go up to the Supreme Court um, to you know not just rule uh, hastily but okay let's let's brief it let's um, uh, have oral arguments because there's essentially. There's there's no harm done uh, if we wait a couple more months to get a a more fleshed out decision um, uh, versus if we were to erroneously uh, uh, declare that um, uh, you know there is no privilege or, or you know here's the scope of the privilege and then that bell can't be unrung. Yeah, because once those so documents think, are I think, out, I think there. both yeah. those courts get it get it right. Yeah, I I agree. Though, so, and I think when we talk about the harm. I think a lot of folks are focusing on the harm to Donald Trump, and they're like, "Well, anything that harms yeah, Donald the Trump harms is to the, the president." Exactly, yeah. and that's that's what I think hasn't been emphasized enough. Is that yes, there would certainly be irreparable harm potentially to Donald Trump, and yay, you know, okay, I'm all for that. But there's also the potential chilling effect on the the current and future presidencies because if they see this ruling saying well you know these these things aren't necessarily going to be covered by executive privilege or only until the moment that I stop being president well yeah. what yeah. does that have a chill one on January twentieth it's all coming out yeah yeah so my my point is is that if for people who think this is a no brainer easy decision it's not really because it is important that there's a reason why executive privilege exists and I think there's a good case to be made that it just doesn't go away because the president ends his term of office, because you have to think about the whole point of executive privilege, right? And that is yeah. to allow for that sort of free, uh, free exchange of information between a president and his or her advisors. And so if there was, if there's precedent saying that, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's fine as long as you're president, but once you're out of office, it's all fair game. How could that not potentially have a chilling effect? Now you need to weigh that against know what's being considered and what the legislative purpose of Congress is and asking for these documents and the nature of is this a criminal inquiry or things like that. And so I agree with you that both courts, it seems to me, got this right. But this is not a this is not a simple case. And I think people who think it is either way are dramatically oversimplifying uh, the sort of competing values that are at stake here. Yeah. And and. Executive privilege is like like many privileges a qualified privilege, 
which means it's it, it's not like a blanket. I'm the executive. Everything I say do um, yeah. is privileged. It's well, it's privileged except for certain circumstances, or it's privileged in in certain circumstances, and and so there is a a weighing and a a factual inquiry for the courts to kind of draw a line of, well, this is privileged. For example, um, uh, you know, in in uh, Watergate, there was the the question about uh, executive privilege in the tapes. Uh, and and the court said uh, no; those are not subject to uh, executive privilege, and were were eventually released, um, uh, or able to be subpoenaed. But they would, I think, they would have drawn the line on: uh, Can you depose a, a president, right? Uh, on on executive privilege, I think I think there's there's a again there's lines to be drawn, and it's it's more um, uh, as you say more complicated than just uh, Trump bad. Right uh, or a, a yes, there's privilege. No, there's not privilege, because these decisions. Um, one, you're setting it up for whatever the Supreme Court's going to do eventually. But two, it's going to affect, as you said, a lot of how presidents uh, and the executive branch govern themselves. Um, you know, rightly or wrongly. So it's it's I yeah, it sounds weird to say. I think uh, I think the the district judge is probably at the end of the day right on the merits. Um, but uh, I think the Court of Appeals is right on. Um, let's let's uh, let's think it through before we get there. Yeah. And, you know, I think the Biden administration sort of weighed the benefits of transparency in this clearly, I would say, extraordinary instance. But that against that chilling effect and ended up making what I see as the right call to not assert privilege. But I, I, I don't expect it was like the easiest call in the world. For the Biden administration to make, given, you know, our discussion of this. And in fact, we had talked earlier about uh, privilege in the Biden administration in this context. And we we sort of thought, well, we're not really sure what they would necessarily do because of this of this sort of tension. But I also get why House Democrats are upset because they're expecting they want the stuff. Well, now. Well, well, yeah, the, I mean, the now. Right. They are expecting that these. These documents will be damaging to Trump and also to others who communicated with him on January 6th, including some congressional Republicans. And now, even assuming they need it for the midterms. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, because if you look at the timeline, right, even assuming that the appeals court ends up agreeing with the district court judge in, in the end, uh, this this goes to the Supreme Court. And, you know, I can't imagine the Supreme that the Supreme Court, you can see an instance where the Supreme Court doesn't issue their own ruling final ruling until i don't know maybe sometime in the summer and that that gives the committee a lot less time to work with like you said before the midterms and also kind of complicating this i guess complicating this house democrats have to know that it's highly unlikely that that january 6th committee is going to be in place after january of 2023 because i think it's unrealistic for them to expect that they're going to be in control of the house of representatives and so if they only get access to those records, say, in June of 2022, and they also have to focus on their own midterm elections, that doesn't give them a whole lot of time to do the work that they want to do. And so that's that's why the push for this sort of thing and these sort of record requests can take an awful long time. And, and certainly Republicans or Trump supporters, at least, are hoping that that they'll be able to run out the clock on this. And I think there's a reasonably good chance that that's at least to a certain extent going to be what's going to happen well there's also something in politics that is is really important that often doesn't get 
considered when the, the media is talking about stuff or you don't hear about the news and that's momentum um and and sort of the the short-term memory span of of the electorate uh if if we are uh into next summer and talking about what happened on january 6th there are a whole lot of people who unless that story has been in front of them unless it's been put out uh continually this is a a big issue um are are going to start that's going to recede in their memories, right? Um, rightly or wrongly, you can say it should or it shouldn't, but uh, I think it will. Um, and more, more particularly, I think a lot of folks may say, as I as I predict, uh, next summer of why the hell am I paying five dollars a gallon for gas? Um, and and we're talking about uh, what Trump said or didn't say uh, a year and a half ago, yeah, um, two years ago. I, I think that's just and that's just the political reality of it. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think one one lesson we talked about last week that Democrats might want to take away from from those recent elections is that don't run against Trump if Trump isn't on the ballot. That's not necessarily going to be a winning strategy. So that might make a lot more sense in 2024 if he ends up being the nominee, but uh, not not so much for the not so much for the midterms. He is he is as they say transitory, Mike. Oh, let's let's God, God from let's hope so. Let's hope so. I think you're wrong, but I've never helped you or right on anything. I don't think more than this. But anyway, on that note, there we kind of reached the end of our time here for the regular show. We still have a lot to talk about on our our supporter bonus show. We want to get into the uh, federal judge ruling that the Texas mask mandate ban is not okay because of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, some pretty rough. Uh, uh, Situations that House Republicans, the 13 House Republicans who voted for the infrastructure bill are facing. And also, I think we'll, we'll surely have time to get into a new university that's a pretty intriguing, uh, interesting sort of prospect. We'll talk about that and maybe that Pew political typology survey that uh, Jay referred to earlier. All that's on the bonus show. If you are a supporter that will be in your feed when you hear that. And if you're not a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys, and you can become one. Or uh, if you would like to get that bonus show and you can't afford to support the show, just send me an email, Mike at politics And I will make that happen. If you're not already a subscriber to the show, that doesn't cost anything. It really helps us out as well as ratings and reviews. If you can leave those on the podcast app, your choice, it makes a big difference. And finally, sharing your favorite episodes, social media, that, that also helps out a lot and really quick and easy and costs nothing. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can at mail.politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find links to our Facebook and Twitter on in the show notes. A special thanks, as always, to our most excellent executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.